All right, hello, Christ community. Uh, uh, greetings to our 15th Street campus and our West campus at Northridge High School and our Traditions venue. So glad you're here. You know, there, there is something uniquely powerful that happens when God's people gather together and worship him and, and look at his word. And so I'm really excited about what God wants to do in our lives today. So I have a, I have a, a confession of sorts to make. I, I've never seen the movie Schindler's List. Now, the reason I put that in the, in the category of a confession is because I've had a number of people over the years tell me, you have to see this movie. You need, it is your civic duty, right? You need to see this movie. It is important for every person to see this movie. And I get that. I mean, I realize there is significant value in seeing Schindler's List. I mean, the Holocaust was horrible, and we need to be reminded of that horror so that it doesn't happen again. I, I get all that. But the bottom line is, you know, after a hard week at work, and I'm sitting down with Raylene with our nachos or popcorn or whatever, and we're choosing movies. Uh, Schindler's List is not on our list, okay? We, we want to be entertained. We don't want to be depressed. Thus, my confession, okay? I haven't seen it, even though I know I ought to. It's important that I do. Now, when I, when I think about the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, that we're going to be looking at today, there is a similar dynamic at work. It is not a passage that we like to look at. It is not a passage that, that we go to for comfort or for encouragement. It is painful. It's depressing. And yet, it is vitally important. If you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63. Now, we, we are in the midst of a series of messages where we're walking through the book of Luke. And one thing that we're noticing is, is that Luke spends a great deal of time focusing on these things that happened to Jesus in the, in the final hours, really, of his life and, and leading up to the crucifixion. See, our tendency, our tendency is to gloss over this stuff so that we can get to the resurrection, right? I mean, we, we, we want to get to the good stuff, you know, victory over death. And, and, and we will, I promise, we will celebrate Easter in two weeks. You know, we're going to do that. But we dare not skip over or breeze past the things that lead up to that moment. There is significance here. Even though it's hard to look at, God has some important things for us to see and learn and to embrace from this passage. Now, as we've seen for the past few weeks, beginning in, in, in Luke chapter 22, things begin to take a very dark turn for Jesus. It begins with betrayal. Judas, one of his disciples, chooses to betray Jesus, leading the religious leaders to where Jesus is that night so that they can arrest him. The moment he is arrested, all of his friends, the disciples, all flee for their lives. They abandon him. Jesus is all alone. Within the course of a few hours, Jesus has experienced the pain of betrayal and abandonment. But there is more to come for Jesus. And in chapter 22, beginning in verse 63, we're going to see Jesus, the perfect son of God, experiencing the painful reality of injustice. The painful reality of injustice. People abusing power, people manipulating circumstances, people using violence. It is not an easy passage to look at. But it's important because it can give us a gospel perspective on the issue of injustice. There are injustices happening all around us, injustices that we experience or we see other people experiencing. And at times, these realities leave us feeling a bit lost when it comes to our faith. What does God say about injustice? Does he even care about these things? 
Now, there are, there are lots of passages in the Bible where that we could go to to talk about God's passion for justice. But what is unique about the passage we're going to be looking at, what is unique about this passage that we're looking at today is that in this passage, God is the victim of injustice. God is actually the victim of injustice. Jesus, God's son, fully experienced the horrible reality of injustice. So what does it look like when God faces the same kinds of injustice as we face, and how does he respond to that? What, what might it look like for us to respond in a similar way? So let's look at this passage, and I want to ask this question initially here. Well, what kinds of injustices did Jesus face? And we're going to walk through this passage and see them. The first is revealed beginning in verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Now, what we see here is the injustice of brutality. Brutality. Jesus is surrounded by this group of temple guards, and they just start pounding on him, violently beating him for no reason. The word used here for beat literally means to skin. I mean, it is not just a few slaps here and there. They are beating him to a pulp without mercy. They're a bunch of bullies. But it's not just physical brutality, it's verbal as well. They mock him, they make fun of him, they put a blindfold on him, and then they hit him, and they laughingly ask, oh, who hit you that time, prophecy man? This is so demeaning, it is so brutal, it's hard to even read. It's a vivid picture of injustice, of brutality, of senseless violence against the innocent son of God. Now, we instinctively know this is wrong, even though it happens all the time in our society and in our world. Husbands who think it's okay to hit or verbally abuse their wives or their children. Bullies at school who think it's okay to brutalize someone smaller or different than them. Employers who think it's okay to degrade their subordinates. People who think it's okay to vandalize the home or the business of someone who practices a different religion or voted a different way. In parts of Kenya... Young girls, very young girls, are often forced to go through female genital mutilation for the purpose of robbing them of enjoying sexual pleasure later in life. Um, it is a horrific practice. It is a horrific practice that is just part of that culture. Uh, Ten years ago, we as a church helped establish a girls' rescue center in Kenya to try and rescue girls from these practices and, and to try to change the culture. It is never okay to harm or to beat or to demean someone, regardless of our differences. And we, we instinctively know this. These things are unjust, and they grieve the heart of God. Every person is created in the image of God, and, and because of that, they have value. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but, but, but we are always to treat them with respect, which was not happening to Jesus. He experienced brutality at its worst, and he's God's son. Well, the second form of injustice is described in, in beginning of verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all ask, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. 
Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. Okay, so after Jesus is beaten all night long, he is brought before the Jewish religious leaders who who, um, paid Judas to betray Jesus. And as Jesus stands before them, bloody and beaten, they basically ask him two questions. Are you the Messiah and are you the son of God? And Jesus doesn't deny either one of these. In fact, he asserts that from now on, the son of man, that's an important title, and the the Jewish leaders knew it. Jesus used that. It's It's a prophetic title for God that all of them would have been familiar with because it's straight out of the book of Daniel. The son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. So this is the most powerful place in the universe. And Jesus says to these religious leaders, that's where I'm going to be very soon and forever. Now, clearly, Jesus could have called God's angels to come rescue him, to deliver him from these evil religious leaders. He had the power to do so, but instead he chose to suffer this injustice. It was part of God's plan, and he knew it. And so he responded truthfully, but not defensively. And they immediately jumped on his answer. We don't need any more testimony. We have heard it from his own lips. And so the whole assembly of the religious leaders, they lead Jesus to Pilate. To Pontius Pilate. So who is, who is Pilate? Well, Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea, which was the region around Jerusalem, is the southern region of Israel. And the, the Romans were the ones in charge in Israel, right? Rome had overtaken Israel years before. So in order for the religious leaders to do what they wanted to do with Jesus, kill him, they needed Roman authority to get the job done, to give the okay, which is why they go to Pilate. As governor, he would have the authority to do this. Now, before we look at Pilate, though, I want us to notice what these religious leaders say to Pilate about Jesus. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. See, notice what they're doing here. They really have only one legitimate accusation to make against Jesus, his claim to be Messiah. But they know that's not going to hold any water with Pilate. He doesn't care about that. That will hold no water with him. So they embellish the accusations against Jesus. These are trumped up charges. And so we see here, secondly, we see here the injustice of false accusations. They say, this man is trying to subvert our nation. Really? I mean, Jesus never talked about overthrowing the government. Even even their words, our nation, are so slimy. I mean, come on. They didn't even view Rome as our nation. They hated the Romans. But they're just schmoozing up to Pilate here. They're, They're saying the things they think will move him, move Pilate, to take action against Jesus. Which is why then they bring up this tax issue, saying Jesus opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. That is not true. Jesus never said that. Now, the incident they're referring to occurred earlier in Luke chapter 20, where some spies were sent by the religious leaders to ask Jesus a question in order to trap him into saying something that they could use later on against him before Pilate. And so they asked Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And and Jesus knew exactly what they were doing. He knew they were trying to trap him. So he said, well, hand me a coin. And, And they handed him a coin. He said, whose inscription is on it? And they said, Caesar's. So Jesus said, well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. It's a brilliant answer. Um, End of discussion. They didn't know what to say. 
But now they're standing before Pilate accusing Jesus of saying it's, that Jesus said it was wrong to pay taxes to Caesar. But that wasn't what he said. So Jesus, the innocent son of God, is being falsely accused. He's being lied about. These leaders are bringing totally false charges before Pilate. And his life is at stake here. He's being lied about. And again, we instinctively know when we read this, we instinctively know this is wrong. It is unjust. And yet it happens all the time. A friend of mine was recently falsely accused of something at work with no opportunity to defend himself. He was just placed on leave and, and is now kind of under this cloud of suspicion. I mean, it is horribly unjust to be falsely accused and have no real opportunity to defend yourself. But that's exactly what's happening to Jesus. Verse 3 of chapter 23. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. I mean, even with all these false accusations, Pilate is not convinced that there is any ground, there's any basis for a charge against Jesus. Verse 5, but they insisted. He stirs up the people all over, all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and he's come all the way here. See, they're continuing these false accusations. Now, when Pilate hears this last statement from them, when he hears that Jesus was actually from Galilee, he suddenly has this brilliant idea, he thinks. It's a brilliant idea. If Jesus is from Galilee, then technically he's not in my jurisdiction. He's in Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod just happens to be in Jerusalem right now for the Passover. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod because he doesn't want to have to deal with this situation anymore. Okay, now, now in the presence of Herod, so Jesus goes to Herod. In the presence of Herod, Jesus experiences a third aspect of injustice, and that is prejudice. Prejudice. The word prejudice means to prejudge someone. That's what it is, prejudice, to prejudge. It is to respond to someone based on your or my presuppositions. Herod had never met Jesus, but he'd heard about him. He had heard about him. He had some presuppositions about him. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. So you see, Herod had heard about Jesus being a miracle worker. And so when Jesus was standing before Herod, he wanted him to do some miracle. He wanted him to do magic tricks, basically, right? He wanted to do a few magic tricks. He wanted to be entertained. He wanted Jesus to perform on demand, but Jesus would have nothing to do with this. Jesus was not interested in, in falling into, you know, Herod's prejudiced and simplistic ideas about who Jesus was. He wasn't going to play that game, even though not playing along had consequences, which we see. Verse 11, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. So Herod's reaction is indicative of what happens when prejudice is at work. When we prejudge someone, we expect them to act or to respond in a certain way based on their skin color or their ethnicity or their gender or their age or their political affiliation or whatever. We put them in a box in our mind about how they're going to respond. We put them in a box. 
we aren't interested in dialoguing with them or in really understanding them. No, we, have, we already have them stereotyped and we expect them to perform in that particular way. And when we do that, the end result of this is often ridicule and mocking, right? That's what's happening here. That's what happens to us or in, in us. We make fun of people who are different than us. We look down on them. We mock their values. It's way easier to do that than it is to have a conversation. We, we, you know, we, we are seeing this so much today in our society, especially in the area of politics. I mean, there, there is all this prejudice and hatred and mockery as it relates to who we happen to vote for. I mean, it's dividing families. It's, it's breaking up friendships. I mean, whatever happened to trying to understand another person's perspective and find out why they think what they do or voted the way they do instead of demonizing them and pigeonholing them? Whatever happened to listening to them, politely agreeing to disagree, but at least understanding where they're coming from. So instead, what happens is we judge and we prejudge. We prejudge. We put people in boxes in our minds, and then we look for things that just reinforce our stereotypes. Ah, there they go again. Ha, see, I knew it. We just look for data that will reinforce our stereotypes. That's what prejudice does. When, when what all of us really want we just want to be heard and understood, right? That's what all of us really want. We don't want to be put in boxes by other people. We want to be heard and understood. So Jesus knows what it feels like to be the victim of prejudice, to be misunderstood, to be stereotyped, to be, to be mocked for his beliefs and his lifestyle. So Herod gets quickly bored with all of this um, since Jesus isn't going along with his uh, Jerusalem's Got Talent gig here. Um, and and so, so Herod gets bored with this, and so he sends Jesus back to Pilate. And Luke tells us here that Herod and Pilate became friends that day. They had never liked each other before, <laughs> but now because of Jesus, they become friends. Even when he's not trying to, Jesus brings reconciliation. Right, which is pretty amazing. Uh, it's very interesting. Okay, so now verse 13, verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. See, clearly, again, this is reinforcing this, Jesus is innocent. We, the readers, when we're reading this, we know this. Pilate knows this. There is no basis for the charges against him, and certainly no basis for a death sentence. But the religious leaders will not give up. They will not give up. They'll have none of that. Verse 18, with one voice, they cried out, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Now, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, Pilate spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. Three separate times, Pilate declares Jesus' innocence. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that there are no grounds to sentence Jesus to death. And at this point, he seems to be holding his ground. He seems to be holding his ground, but all of that changes in a matter of seconds. 
All of that changes in a matter of moments. Verse 23. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. Now, this is another ugly aspect of injustice that Jesus experienced, and that is the injustice of mob rule. Mob rule, where an angry crowd that has been worked up into a frenzy becomes the primary dispensers of, of justice. This is the Wild West, right? I mean, this is parts of Africa Day. This is parts of the inner city where, where gangs and mobs rule, where vengeance and hatred are the, are the definers of justice. And Jesus is caught right in the middle of it. Mob rule is so dangerous because of how easily people can get caught up in the emotion of something. Everyone's shouting, and we can just kind of get caught up in that and start thinking that right is wrong and wrong is right. I mean, th this is the epitome of injustice, of evil. An innocent man being sentenced to a horrible death on the cross while a guilty man goes free. I mean, Luke tells us twice in this passage that Barabbas was guilty of insurrection and murder. Twice Luke points that out, which are far more significant things than Jesus was even being charged with. But the crowd, the crowd prevails. Not justice, the crowd prevails. Jesus is sentenced to crucifixion, and Barabbas goes free. So what do we do with this? I mean, we've just walked through this passage where Jesus, the perfect son of God, who did miracles and healed people and was sinless and, and, and righteous, this Jesus experienced in raw form the, the horrible reality of brutality and of false accusations and of prejudice and of mob rule. This is humanity at its worst right here. This is injustice at its pinnacle, and it's focused on Jesus, God's son. Which raises a very important question. A, a, a second question I want us to wrestle with here. Why? Why did Jesus have to go through this? Why did Jesus have to go through this? Until recently, my mind has been changed on this thing, so I want to share a little of my process here. Until recently, I had in my mind this idea that all of the suffering and all the injustice that Jesus experienced leading up to the cross, all those things were part of God's wrath being poured out upon sin. So I, I had this idea that, that what Jesus suffered in the passage we just read was a part of Jesus' sacrifice being made on our behalf. But I realized recently, I was thinking about this and, and, and pointed and talking to some other people, listening to some other people, and I, but I re, and I recently realized that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, God isn't pouring out his wrath or his judgment in, the, in, the, in these events that we just read about. He's not. Humanity is. Humanity is the one doing the injustice to Jesus, not God. Humanity is doing this. This isn't payment for anything from God's perspective. There's nothing happening here in terms of God and something being paid off for God. This, that's not what's happening here. God's wrath towards sin was, was going to be experienced by Jesus on the cross when God turned his face away and, and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And right, and, and right then God turned his face away. Jesus experienced God's wrath and then Jesus died. And at that moment, he paid the price for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that wage. All of that was happening on the cross and it's very significant but it's not what's happening before the cross. So what is the purpose 
What is the purpose of this injustice that Jesus experienced leading up to the cross? Why did he have to experience that? Here's why. The injustice that Jesus endured at the hands of sinners vividly shows us what he was dying for. The injustice he experienced at the hands of sinners vividly shows us what Jesus was dying for. As Jesus was being beaten and mocked and lied about, his heart was to get to the cross so that there would be a way for humanity to not do that stuff to each other anymore. To not treat each other that way. See, Jesus was going to die on the cross as a way to reverse the injustice and the evil that was happening. In a way to redeem that and reverse the injustice and evil that had been unleashed in the world and that he himself had experienced. That's what he was doing. And that's why he didn't go to the cross on this pristine, protected path. He didn't. He faced head on the horror of injustice, knowing that the cross is where that injustice is going to get dethroned. The cross is where that injustice that he just experienced is going to get dethroned. And here is what is so cool about this, what's so powerful about this for us. When we live our lives in the fullness of that cross, injustice gets dethroned in our lives as well. See, when we live our lives in, 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 in the fullness of the cross and what Jesus has done for us, when we live our lives in the face of that and the fullness of the cross, injustice gets dethroned in, in our lives. So rather than using us using violence or brutality to use someone or to punish someone that we disagree with, we can respond in love, the, the love that Jesus extends towards us in the gospel. Rather than using lies and deception to falsely accuse other people, we, we, we can be a people who gently embrace truth. Rather than letting attitudes of prejudice creep into our hearts towards people who think differently or vote differently or live differently than we do, we can see them through the lens of Jesus, knowing that we all need the gospel. We, we all need the gospel. See, the power of the cross is that it actually changes our hearts so that we no longer want to be a part of the injustice that's being done to other people. We, we don't want to be a part of that anymore because the gospel is changing our hearts. And not only that, not only is it changing our hearts, we, we also have, in the gospel, we also have a new power to live differently when we face injustice. When injustice is actually done uh, to us, we now have the power of Jesus in us. Suddenly, the way Jesus responded to injustice, is it's now within the reach of all of us. There, there's this fascinating passage in 1 Peter, which is a letter that Peter later wrote um, to people who were suffering for Christ. And it's fascinating to me because Peter had, he was observing this, we talked about this last week, he was observing from a distance what was happening to Jesus. He had abandoned them, but he was observing. He was seeing him suffer. And now, decades later, Peter writes to the church, people who are suffering, and this is what he says. 
But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this, you were called. He's talking about suffering. You ever hear anyone say, I'm called to suffer? <laughs> That's what he's saying here. To this suffering, you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, we just read about that, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God. See, Peter is saying that because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, because of the gospel, we can respond to injustice the same way Jesus did. Without vengeance or retaliation, instead, we can entrust ourselves to God who will judge everyone justly. That's exactly what Jesus did when he suffered injustice. And in the gospel, we are freed to do the same. It, it, it is in that decision that the power of injustice is driven back. It's in Jesus' response, it's in that decision we make that the power of injustice is actually driven back. It's, it's counterintuitive, but it, it's true. One of the most vivid pictures of this occurred on the James Pettus Bridge outside of Selma, Alabama. In 1965, on that day, a group of peaceful protesters, many of them pastors and church leaders, chose to march protesting the fact that in the South, many African-Americans were still, they were being denied the right to vote, which was a horrible injustice and a vivid picture of prejudice. Now, the main civil rights leader, <clears throat> Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., was heavily influenced by Jesus to approach these injustices in a nonviolent way. And so as they crossed this bridge into Selma, they were brutally assaulted by state troopers who were following orders. They beat them with billy clubs, knocking them over. But the marchers didn't fight back. They, they didn't let vengeance fill their hearts. They stood there as they were beaten. And it was all caught on camera. And suddenly the conscience of a nation was awakened because of what it saw. See, there is real power in responding to injustice the way Jesus responded to injustice, not with retaliation and vengeance, repaying evil for evil and angry shouting, which seems to be characterized most of the protests today, not that way, but with peaceful determination, knowing that God's justice will one day prevail. Now, I realize this raises all sorts of practical questions. And I'm certainly not saying it's wrong to protect ourselves when we're attacked. And I'm not saying it's wrong to pursue legal means of justice when that becomes necessary. I mean, in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul used legal means to protect his life from being unjustly accused. So I'm not saying any of that, but, and, but there are tons of questions like that. But I, wanna, I want us to wrestle this question because I think as Christ followers, there is a question here that demands that we wrestle with. We have got to wrestle. As Christ followers, there is a, th th this passage demands that we wrestle with this question. As followers of Jesus, what difference does the cross make in terms of how we view and respond to injustice? That's the question. 
as followers of Christ. I'm not talking about what our society says. I'm talking about, I'm talking about as followers of Christ, what difference does the cross make in terms of how we view and how we respond to injustice? Let's pray. So as we're praying here, I want us just to sit with that question for a moment. It's really important. We're followers of Jesus. And because we're followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, the cross is to make a difference in how we live our lives, including how we respond to injustice. Is it in your life, in my life? Just in the quiet of your, the quietness of your heart, you can keep your eyes closed if you want. Just th- think about injustices you see. Think about things that make you angry. Are, are you looking at that situation through the lens of the cross? In light of what Jesus has done for you? Holy Spirit, would you, we thank you for your word. And Jesus, thank you for your amazing example and what you purchased for us on the cross. And I pray, we pray that what you have done on the cross in the power of the gospel would impact the way we respond to injustice, the way we think about injustice, and the way we view people with whom we disagree. We pray for that. Forgive us, Lord, for those times when we respond to evil with evil, with with vengeance, with anger. Would you help us, Lord? Help us be people of the cross. Would would you help us be knowing what you have done for us, the love that you have poured out towards us? Would Would you help us respond to injustice through that lens, that reminder of how loved we are in our brokenness and in our sinfulness? So help us respond to that through the heart of the gospel with gentleness, with truth, entrusting ourselves to you, just like Jesus did. And we do that right now. We pray that you would help us walk in your path, not in our own strength, but through the, through the power of the gospel. Because when you got to the cross, that's what made all the difference. What you did for us on the cross made all the difference in terms of how we respond to injustice. So thank you for going to the cross, Jesus. Thank you for all that you endured at the cross, the wrath of God being poured out. Thank you so that we might be able to live new lives live differently than the world around us. And so I pray, we pray for the grace and the power to do that. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for being such an amazing Savior. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We worship you. And we want to continue just to worship and respond to the truth of God's word through worship. So why don't we stand, whatever campus you're at here, why don't you stand? If at some point you want to sit down, that's totally cool. But let's begin standing. And Jesus, we ask you to set us free right now to worship you. We love you. We love you. We praise you, Lord.